What a Day is brought to you by Ulta Beauty. This AAPI Heritage Month, Ulta Beauty is celebrating the joy of belonging, belonging to a community composed of intricate connections, belonging to our past and our future, to the heritage and birthright that is beauty. Ulta Beauty shines a light on the AAPI community, passing the mic to brand founders and creators to tell their stories centered on heritage, joy, and beauty. They carry AAPI-owned and founded brands like Live Tinted, Peach and Lily, Glamnetic, Tree Hut, and more. Shop AAPI-owned and founded brands at Ulta Beauty Stores and Ulta.com. It's Monday, March 7th. I'm Travel Anderson. And I'm Priyanka Arabindi, and this is What A Day, the show that's sure that the radio silence we're getting from Machine Gun Kelly and Megan Fox can't mean anything good. You know, anytime these two are quiet, they're plotting. They've never been quiet. They're- They've never <laughs> been quiet. I'm so conv- Like, what's happening? On today's show, a series of deadly tornadoes hit Iowa on Saturday. Plus, the Walt Disney Company faces blowback for not taking a stand against Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill. But first, the latest in the war between Russia and Ukraine as we go to record this at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Today marks 12 days since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And thus far, the situation does not show any signs of improvement. Over the weekend, the violence continued in multiple Ukrainian cities. There are reports of intense shelling and a growing number of casualties. So far, Ukrainian forces have successfully defended their positions in some areas, including north and east of Kyiv, as well as in the port city of Mykolaiv. But there are very concerning reports from other areas, like at an airport 100 miles out of Kyiv, where a Russian missile strike destroyed both civilian and military infrastructure— and at a Ukrainian nuclear power plant where Russian forces have managed to take full control. Perhaps the most highly scrutinized events of the weekend have been the efforts to rescue civilians from these areas of intense violence. Some of these efforts have come under attack from Russian forces, both in Kyiv and in the port city of Maripol. In Kyiv, civilians using a bridge to escape the fighting were fired at with mortar shells, leaving at least four people dead. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken had this to say on CNN's State of the Union on Sunday morning. We've seen... Very credible reports of um, deliberate attacks on civilians, which would constitute a war crime. Uh, We've seen very uh, credible reports about the use of certain weapons. Uh, And what we're doing right now is documenting all of this, putting it all together, looking at it, and making sure that as people and the appropriate organizations and institutions investigate whether war crimes have been or are being committed, uh, that um, we can uh, support uh, whatever they're doing. All right. Wow. So what do we make of this from Blinken? Yeah, the term war crimes isn't one that's thrown around lightly. So definitely very bad things happening over there. Mm -hmm. According to the UN, at least 364 Ukrainians have died since the beginning of this invasion, and at least 759 have been injured, though the actual counts are believed to be much higher than those numbers. The UN's refugee agency says that in the past 10 days, One and a half million people have fled Ukraine, making this the fastest growing refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. All right. So what are the Russian leaders, the Ukrainian leaders saying? Yeah, we'll talk more in depth about this shortly. But Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has been calling for NATO to stop Russia's aerial attack by enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine, which would be a major military escalation. Zelensky has also been critical of NATO for not doing more, and yesterday he described Russia's plans to attack defense complexes that are in the middle of Ukrainian cities as, quote, deliberate murder. Putin, on the other hand, is saying that if the government of Ukraine continues to do what it's doing, which is 
defending the country against invasion. Right. It will, quote, put under question the future of Ukrainian statehood. Putin has also said that he considers the sanction against Russia, quote, the equivalent of a declaration of war, and that any country that calls for a no-fly zone over Ukraine will be considered an enemy combatant. All right. Well, whoa there, buddy. Slow down over there. Yeah. Please and thank you. There is so much going on on the ground with the rest of the world, with the refugee crisis. For more on all of this, I spoke to former Deputy National Security Advisor and host of Pod Save the World, Ben Rhodes. I started by asking him if civilians can still safely escape Ukraine. It's getting more and more difficult is the answer. Uh, Mm -hmm. We still see civilians getting out, but basically in multiple places, there's efforts by Russia to encircle cities, to really terrorize the residents uh, with the kind of indiscriminate shelling uh, that is coming their way to kind of disregard some of these negotiations, which have been around, not a ceasefire in the whole country, but creating quarters for civilians to more safely escape. And this is something we've seen Russia do in the past, you know, in Syria, where Russia was a combatant. They would negotiate ceasefires and then they would violate them kind of at their will to make a point that there's a limit to what you can count on, frankly, from their assurances. So it's just going to get harder and harder, I think, for Ukrainians to make it to the border, but they're clearly going to keep trying. Yeah, and over the weekend, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky held a call with over 280 U.S. lawmakers. Can you walk us through what was said on that call? So if you look at Zelensky in general, like what he's focused on is maximizing what support he can get from everybody. So, you know, Mm -hmm. he's talking to world leaders constantly. He's talking to not just the U.S. Congress, but other parliaments. And I think his ask to the U.S. focused on military assistance, right? The Ukrainians have asked for a a no-fly zone to be enforced by NATO. That is something that the Biden administration does not want to do. And I think while I understand why the Ukrainians obviously want all the support they can get, people have to bear in mind that setting up a no-fly zone would include bombing the Russian, not just planes in the sky, but the air defense systems that are manned by Russians on the ground. So that would be a direct war between the United States and Russia. And that's not something that the Biden team has wanted to risk. I think as a fallback to that, Zelensky was basically asking for the maximum amount of military support that uh, Ukraine can get, including NATO countries providing him with aircraft that Ukrainians can use. He was telling Congress, hey, if you won't do a no-fly zone, let me get aircraft of my own and then backfill the NATO allies. And I'm sure he's asking for continued increase in sanctions, um, where all that's really left is sanctions of Russian oil and gas exports. So, you know, I think it was him calling for whatever support can be provided. And I think, you know, rightly so, that's his job. I'm going to come back to the oil imports in a moment, but also on Sunday, in answering Zelensky's pleas from Saturday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that NATO members, particularly Poland, have the go-ahead to send their fighter aircrafts to Ukraine. I'm wondering how does this plan differ from how the U.S. and other NATO allies have been helping thus far? So if you look at the type of military support that Ukraine has received over the last seven years, really, it's generally been defensive weapons. What we've seen, I think, in the run-up to the invasion from Russia and particularly since is an escalation of the types of weapons that are going in to include you know, surface-to-air weapons, stingers, things that can shoot stuff out of the sky, but now literally talking about you know, fighter aircraft. And I think the important point here is that these are weapons that are going to be used to kill Russian forces. You see NATO shifting its appetite to being willing to support not just kind of purely defensive weaponry, but anything the Ukrainians need within certain limits. It further contributes to this feeling, you know, I've had, I think that a lot of us have had watching this, that 
we're kind of walking up to the line of being in this war. Mm-hmm. We're arming the Ukrainians. We have these massive economic sanctions. We're you know kicking Russia out of stuff. All of which, all those steps make sense in their own right. But the question is, is there a scenario in which that doesn't kind of lead us into more direct conflict with Russia? And I think nobody can know for sure what Vladimir Putin would interpret as the U.S. having crossed that line. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, Blinken has said that the U.S. and European partners are exploring banning Russian oil imports. I feel like just this weekend alone, I've seen so many people on social media commenting about their gas prices hitting $4 and $5. But what would it actually look like for the U.S. and the European partners to ban Russian oil imports? What would that look like for us? From our standpoint, it would just basically be the shock to energy markets and the increase in oil prices generally that would come from that kind of disruption. Mm -hmm. For Europe, it could be much, much more difficult because they get a massive chunk of their imported gas from Russia. And so there you're talking about much more significant economic disruption, potentially literally energy disruptions, you know, not just people filling up their cars, it's people heating their homes. So we are likely looking at... (laughs) further inflation, further uh, increases in gas prices in any case. Mm -hmm. If we do move to kind of this severe cutoff of Russian exports, it's just going to create all kind of disruptions in the global economy generally, too. Now, is there more that the outside world could be doing to support Ukraine in this effort? From a sanction standpoint, like we said, it's the oil and gas sanctions. And that's really the Mm -hmm. only thing left. We've already gone in a week to obviously providing much more significant military assistance. There are other things like, should the United States provide real-time intelligence to Ukraine? There's cyber activities. Would we try to disrupt Russian communications? Would we try to broadcast information into Russia now that Putin is seeking to kind of wall off his people from the reality of this war? The huge challenge before the Biden team is how do you reconcile the impulse to do whatever you can to help the Ukrainians with the very real concern of you don't want to triple wire into a nuclear war here, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and somewhere in the middle, right, is kind of where our policy is. And by the way, there's nothing we can do about that. Yeah. Now, the U.N. estimated that more than one and a half million people have had to flee Ukraine due to Russia's invasion. This has created a refugee crisis of sorts at the Ukrainian and Polish border, um, along with other neighboring countries. How are various countries preparing to take in folks who are fleeing from Ukraine? I mean, thus far, you've seen like a huge open door to Ukrainians from Poland and Romania and even Hungary and Germany. And apart from just getting immediate aid, there's this longer term question of where are they going to be? Right now, it's we're in phase one of just absorbing what's going to be millions of people. I think where it gets more difficult is how do you accommodate those people in the next year or two? And also, do the Ukrainians themselves kind of want to have semi-permanent arrangements or do they want to be in more temporary arrangements because they want to go home? Yeah. Now, one of the things I've been interested in kind of looking at all of this news is we've seen a lot of reports as it relates to Black and non-Ukrainian, non-European folks being refused at border crossings or transport stations, having trouble getting out of the country. Do we have any sense of how issues like this are being considered in the different efforts to support folks on the ground? No, I've certainly seen it too as well. You know, Ukraine, major European country, has significant amounts of foreign students, has foreign workforces from different parts of the world. And the reality is, in the context of refugees fleeing from Ukraine, 
that, that tends to just focus on if you've got a passport that says you're Ukrainian, you know? Mm. And mm-hmm. so I think it's put people in this difficult circumstance. But basically, the predicament that those folks are in is seeking help and assistance from their own mm-hmm. governments in whatever country they end up in. Mm-hmm. Um, my hope would be that the welcome that is being afforded to Ukrainians extends, obviously, to everybody else who's fleeing from that violence. And these are the kinds of individual stories that can get lost. And I think the baseline should be, if you are fleeing Ukraine, you should be treated equally as someone worthy of assistance, whether or not you're a Ukrainian citizen or whether you were someone else who happened to be living there. Yeah, definitely. And my last question for you, there are reports that more than 4,300 anti-war protesters have been detained in Russia, and anti-war sentiment has really began to spread rampant throughout the country. Is there any world in which these Russian demonstrators make an impact at home and we see some sort of shift on behalf of Putin? So first of all, I think it is really important to underscore that I genuinely don't believe that this war is at all popular inside of Russia. So I think that there's genuine opposition to what Putin is doing in a way that goes far beyond anything else he has faced. What you need to look at is there's public opinion, which can only really show up in metrics like protest, Mm -hmm. uh, because there's not many other ways for Russians to have their voices heard. There's the opinion of kind of these elite economic circles, the oligarchs. There's the Russian military itself. And I don't think demonstrations alone are going to shift Russia's course, but if you're looking at the convergence of all these other forces, the question is, is there any center in which things change very, very fast in, mm-hmm. in ways that I wouldn't even want to predict what the what is, you know, whether it's like a military coup or some mass popular uprising. I don't think that that's the most likely thing to happen in the near term because Russia is such a dictatorship at this point. Mm-hmm. But things have changed really fast in Russian history, <laughs> like the fall of the Soviet Union, the start of the Soviet Union, like. Russian politics, Mm -hmm. there can be huge shifts in in limited amounts of time. So this is like one of the few big independent variables, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and this is something to watch. That is the latest for now. We'll be back after some ads. What a Day is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She absolutely deserves the best. And that's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, your wife, your auntie, even your granny, okay? Anyone who deserves flowers in your life mm-hmm. doesn't have to be holiday specific. You get flowers, you're getting flowers, <laughs> everyone's getting flowers. <laughs> Go to books.com and use promo code WAD for 25% off. That is B-O-U-Q-S dot com, promo code WAD, books, promo code WAD. Now let's wrap up with some headlines. Headlines. A series of tornadoes ripped through Iowa on Saturday, killing seven people, including two children under five years old. According to the National Weather Service, the state was hit by at least three tornadoes on Saturday, with the worst one hitting Winterset, a small town in Madison County where six of the seven deaths were reported. The Weather Service said that the damage in Winterset suggests that winds had reached over 135 miles an hour. Dozens of homes were destroyed statewide, and cities were left covered in debris on Sunday as a 
officials surveyed the communities affected. And the Des Moines Register reported that the Winterset tornado is the worst Iowa has seen since 2008. Governor Kim Reynolds issued a disaster proclamation for Madison County, saying in a statement, quote, Our hearts ache during this time, but I know Iowans will step up and come together to help in this time of need. Yeah, it's really awful. Twitter users have experienced a significant drop-off in the number of bots commenting and spreading vaccine disinformation since the invasion of Ukraine, according to new reports from The Guardian. While the reasons for this change are likely varied, social media analysts have observed a shift from misinformation about COVID and vaccine mandates to misinformation about geopolitical issues revolving around Ukraine. Additionally, the Security Service of Ukraine reported recently that a Russian bot farm produced 7,000 accounts to post fake information about Ukraine on social media platforms like Telegram, WhatsApp, and Viber. Meanwhile, mentions associating Ukraine with a popular conspiracy theory called the New World Order have doubled since the invasion. Russia has a documented history of coordinating misinformation campaigns online to sow dissent abroad, as demonstrated in the 2016 election and during the COVID pandemic. And while they don't seem to be slowing the misinformation tactics anytime soon, we can take solace in the fact that for a short window, you might be able to get away with tweeting a spicy take like vaccines are good without an American flag named Magamom776 calling you a lizard in your mentions. Savor this moment, everybody. (laughs) Savor the flavor. All right. The company that's dedicated to inclusion and progress and entertainment as long as they're not risking a single American dollar, the Walt Disney Company, (laughs) is facing backlash over its financial support of the Florida Republicans behind the notoriously evil Don't Say Gay Bill. The bill, which would outlaw any and all discussions of queerness in classrooms up to the third grade, was passed in the Florida House of Representatives last month, despite sharp opposition from the state's large LGBTQ plus community. The day after the bill passed, the Orlando Sentinel reported that Disney has donated money to every single sponsor and co-sponsor of the hateful bill, prompting social media outrage over the company's political contributions. Disney released a statement over the weekend in response to the backlash, claiming that the company is a, quote, unifying force that brings people together and that, quote, the biggest impact we can have in creating a more inclusive world is through the inspiring content we produce. Never mind their money, I guess Disney can support the queer community by showing Gaston's friend make eyes at him in three frames of the live-action Beauty and the Beast reboot. Nowhere in its statement did Disney condemn the bill or promise that it would stop funding anti-LGBTQ plus politicians. Of course not. Disney CEO Bob Chapek has also been notably silent on the issue, leaving many to assume that the company won't be committing to any significant change. But hey, at least they sell rainbow Mickey Mouse ears every June. Right. This is wild. Every part of the statement, unifying force that brings people together, the biggest <laughs> impact we can have is creating the inspiring content we produce. That has nothing to do with the things that people are saying. I've had it with people giving <laughs> quotes that have nothing to do with the questions they've been asked or the things that they are being criticized for. This is garbage. Do better. <laughs> The latest and largest United States adaptation of the Canadian trucker convoy descended on Washington, D.C. late last Friday, circling the capital city via Interstate 495 with hundreds of trucks, minivans, pickups, hatchbacks, and of course, motorcycles, a.k.a. trucks that were split down the middle by a mad truck scientist. (laughs) Few more people than at our birthday party, but, you know, we didn't know that at the time. (laughs) While the convoy of trucks slowed traffic for hours by driving below speed limits, organizers said that the convoy had no plans to actually enter the city, 
fearful that bad actors could instigate an event similar to that of January 6th, and instead opting to circle in a 64-mile loop around the city. That is actually a lot of foresight from them, and that is kind of commendable because I'd be really nervous <laughs> that they would do that. By the second loop around the city, the vehicles had gotten spread out from each other, giving the wheeled protest more of a standard traffic vibe. The demonstrators plan to drive around the city throughout the week or until their demands are met, which include a request to, quote, restore the Constitution. The aims of the convoy, which originated as an anti-mask, anti-vax demonstration, have been muddled even further in the past weeks as low COVID deaths and case rates have led to the lessening of mask mandates nationwide. Someone should tell these truckers that if they want to just get out of town for a week, there are way cooler places to vacation than driving in circles around Washington, D.C., like a Bass Pro Shop or a city with a good cheesecake factory. You got <laughs> options. You know, you, I feel like these truckers would really enjoy Myrtle Beach for some reason. Right? You know? Check it out. I don't know. And those are the headlines. One more thing before we go. Check out the latest episode of Offline. Kara Swisher joins John this week for a conversation about the ongoing war in Ukraine, why Putin is losing the misinformation battle, and what makes Zelensky a compelling online hero. Search Offline with John Favreau on your podcast app and smash that follow button to never miss an episode. That's all for today. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, do say gay, and tell your friends to listen. And if you're into reading and not just how to restore the Constitution to factory settings like <laughs> me, What A Day is also a nightly newsletter. Check it out and subscribe at crooked.com slash subscribe. I'm Priyanka Arabindi. I'm Travel Anderson. And, and go, go home, home truckers. truckers. Or at least to Myrtle Beach. Listen, go somewhere. Your dogs are waiting for you at home. They've missed you for so long. Kick back, relax, find your beach. Go tend to your gardens or something. Collect your mail. You don't want to leave packages flying <laughs> out and about. Don't learn that the hard way. <laughs> What a Day is a production of Crooked Media. It's recorded and mixed by Bill Lance. Jazzy Marine and Raven Yamamoto are our associate producers. Our head writer is John Milstein, and our executive producers are Leo Duran and me, Gideon Resnick. Our theme music is by Colin Gilliard and Kashaka. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com.